curated by Future Forum. This is part seven of the 20 Minute City podcast. A little longer than 20 minutes, a conversation with some interesting people at the intersection between their sense of well-being and the city we live in. Welcome to season two. I'm Dino Vrignos, creative director of Future Forum, architect and director of Dust Studio. Over this eight-part series, we're going to introduce you to some inspiring young people charting a course forward here in South Australia and beyond. The movers and shakers, the innovators and disruptors, the elite performers and the unicorn makers. They will share their story, their trials, tribulations and triumphs. And we'll have a bit of fun the way too. My name is Paul Baker and I'm one of the founders of Chefs on Wheels in South Australia. Growing up in the southwest of Sydney, Paul wanted to play professional footy, but found his calling in another arena, the kitchen of some of the world's finest restaurants, where the rough and tumble of the playing field translated across to the intensity of the foodie scene, fighting hard for the call up to the big time and pushing yourself to the absolute limit to stay in the game. But this life took its toll, and with the arrival of a global pandemic, Paul stepped back to find balance, one that allowed him to deploy his talents and those of his community en masse and still create space for family time. Paul's story is one that feels familiar and how identifying the sliding doors moments that shape our lives can turn opportunities into long-term possibilities. And with that, let's get started. Where we must, at the beginning. Our 20 minutes starts now. Paul, thanks so much for making some time to catch up with us here at the amazing Adelaide Central Markets to chat a little bit about your career to date and your journey uh, in in your craft and the changes that you've gone through in particular in the last 18 to 24 months professionally. It'd be really great to get an understanding of who you are and where you've come from and how that shaped what you're doing today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are in the Central Markets. It's um, one of my favorite places to come. I bring my daughter here a lot. I'm not from South Australia, which is probably why this place really is quite special to me. It's one of the first places I, um, I arrived to and um, I visited with my wife. And I'm from Sydney originally. I grew up in a place called Reesby, which is out in uh, the Bankstown, um, Kennery Bankstown district. So I grew up in Reesby and I started my apprenticeship at a restaurant called Aria, which um, most people would be familiar with. Um, so growing up in Reesby, being a chef is not something that happens uh, unless you're on the deep fat fryer at the local um, Milpera Hotel or somewhere of that sort of um, institution. That wasn't a thing in Reesby. So I was traveling to the city, which was a good hour in those days, um, working at Aria, which was at the time was one of the, the best restaurants in the city. Um, it was flashy. It was new. It was just all the things that you just wouldn't associate with a kid from Reesby. Everyone was a plumber, an electrician. My parents didn't really understand what I was doing. They knew I wanted to be a chef, but what come with it was a whole new world to them. Um, so I spent four years there. I then went to work to a couple other restaurants in Sydney and then I started getting the travel bug. I spent some time on Lizard Island, Badara Island, the Maldives, lived in the south of France. And then um, when I arrived back in Australia, I worked on an island and I met my now wife, Annabelle, who was from South Australia. So that's the link back um, here. I just really wanted to sort of plant some, some roots and Adelaide was, you know, kind of the place that really... Um, I felt comfortable with it. was a bit slower than the pace of Sydney. And, you know, I liked Melbourne, but, you know, Adelaide just had that little bit more substance to it where you could really just, you know, get really stuck into something. And then I spent uh, six years at the uh, Botanic Gardens restaurants. We 
took that and took it to you know quite some lofty heights. We won a, a gazillion awards and and you know, re- rebuilt that restaurant into something that you know I'm proud of and a lot of other people in this uh, state were proud of. So it'd be really interesting to understand when when you worked out that there's something in this cooking food thing and becoming a chef. Yeah, I'm, I've had a few moments over the years where you know I grew up in a, f- a family that you know both parents worked a lot and you know I was kind of being the oldest was the one that was kind of left to getting dinner ready for everyone and but at, early on in my teens I, all I cared about was playing footy and cricket. I didn't really care about my career or anything. I went to a public school and you know all we cared about was sport. It was sport, sport, sport. I wasn't going to be a sports star, so you're kind of like in a bit of a rock and a hard place here. Like Paul, you 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 you're kind of making the sides, but you know you're not good enough to be a professional. I'd love to lace up and play for the Bulldogs, but that's not going to happen because you know you're all right, but you're not going to make it. So I tried working in a bank for two weeks because I looked old enough. I was 17. I just ended up smoking cigarettes and drinking beers with one of the um, branch managers on a Friday afternoon. Like. Working to bank, sorry to the bankers, and it was boring. Like I just, you know, I couldn't wait till five o'clock. Come around, they shut the doors, and we got out of there. So the next round of work experience was at um, the Bankstown International Hotel. Now I don't think I've ever been back past there again, but it was pretty eye-opening. I uh, cracked a lot of eggs, and it was a really rough and tumble sort of place. But it kind of reminded me of being on the footy field. There was all these people that were just. Everyone was a big team and they were, it was just loud and there was, a, not, I wouldn't say aggression, aggression, but you could feel the energy in there. And I was like, oh, this actually is way better than the bank. So let's let's pursue this path. But the local TAFE or anything like wasn't structured for commercial cookery. So I had to kind of either wait till I finished school to get this started. So, which is kind of a shame because there was no sort of connection between wanting a career as a chef and still being in high school, which I think a lot has been done since then to connect the two. Um, so I had to kind of wait until I finished high school to be able to get an apprenticeship, uh, which I did at Aria. I had a friend that I was started doing TAFE with that knew of a spot that was coming up because, you know, many people wouldn't know back in those days, it, there was there was people that wanted jobs, but there wasn't a lot of restaurants. So, you know, you really had to fight hard for your job and to get a job and to keep your job. So, um, you know, those threats of, you know, I'm going to fire you were true. They were going to fire you if you didn't do a great job because there was... 10 people lined up the door ready to take that spot. The competitive nature of restaurants at the time was, you know, you really had to, you know, knuckle down and, you know, really learn your craft and you know, hold down that spot or else someone was going to come in and take it. Um, but I was a rat bag when I first started. I, I didn't take it seriously. I should have taken it a lot more serious in the first couple of years. And, you know, Moran is a, you know, a very good mentor and still to this day, you know, um, he's only a phone call away and they kind of set the boy from Reesby on the, you know, the, the straight straight path. It was, you know, the, the culture back then was, you know, not great with regards to drugs and alcohol and, you know, I wasn't into drugs but, you know, we got on the beers. It was a real badge of honour if you could go out all night and still back up work the next day and, you know, and it was kind of accepted culture which it certainly isn't in most places that I've worked now uh, which is really, really good. It, it it's probably one thing that I look back on and wish that I'd done better. Like, you know, don't go out every night, maybe every second night. Let's, you know, let's at least try and call it every second night. And having – when you start an apprenticeship, you every year that goes by, less people ask you to go to their birthday parties and your friends from school get less and less. And so you end up you, – your circle of friends start to become hospitality workers. And, and when they're on seven-day rosters, you know, it's always someone's Friday night on – so there's, there's always a party to be found. There's always someone to go out for a beer with. So 
there's real no downtime. There's just it's all just go go go. So after I'd finished um, at Aria, it was kind of one of those sort of moments where I was like, you know, you've worked with a, a, a great restaurant with a great name, so you know it's now time to capitalize on that. So I went and worked for another um, close mentor of mine, Thomas Johns, who was my sous chef there, um, who really tucked me under his wing and. It nurtured me through that next phase was going through you know the ranks to be a sous chef which is running the team in his absence and you know it, sous chef is really the hardest spot in the kitchen where you don't get any accolades for what you do yet you've got to be that the the guy that's got to keep the standard every single day like everyone hates you because you're the one going around telling them that it needs to be better and you know you're speaking on behalf of the sh- the, the owner and the chef generally um, and Thomas did that you know really well really sort of trusted me and gave me the full autonomy and and that was a really big change for me that really helped me grow as a person and you know I we're still friends to this day and and it was from there that I really took the the big jump to you know taking on bigger roles and I took on a role in the Maldives which in hindsight I think I was a bit too young for but as long as you learn from you know mistakes or opportunities that you've been given that you know you could have done better I thought I did a great job there just with a bit more maturity and work maturity not so much my attitude it was more so just needing a bit more experience at that level under my belt so with that in mind i you know kept kept pushing that i went to badara island and was the um chef there for um for six to nine months where i met my wife and and i really just you know got knuckled down to how i was going to grow and who i was and what my my food style was going to be and what what food meant to me and and when we come to Adelaide, you know, the Botanic Gardens was, you know, the place I really thought that that's, that's who I am. I, I love growing food. I, I love cooking food. I, I, I never, ever tried to be the, the, a flashy chef. Like, really out there sort of food is not really ever who I was and not the type of restaurants that I go to. You know, all the smokes and mirrors and foams and all those sort of things were never really my thing. It was just, it's food honesty that was really something that I always resonated with me. On was it Padara Island? You said Padara. Padara, sorry, Padara, where you met your wife. How important was that moment in terms of distilling and shaping what happened next? Well, obviously, met the love of my life, Annabelle, um, and that was really the you know like where are we going to spend the rest of our lives? What are we going to do? So we went to Sydney um, for a little bit. But guess what? We didn't bed down any roots. We didn't. We got on a plane and moved to France. And I was planning to work on super yachts. And you know, the this was going to be this crazy, you know, um, twelve months. But lo and behold, the GFC hits, and you know, literally every super yacht from, you know, um, Spain to Greece is for sale. And trying to get a job there was just impossible. And so I ended up working in a restaurant in Monaco. And well, that was fun. I still just really wanted to work on a yacht. We just had this grand idea of what we want to do and the GFC just just was not conducive. I had friends were just getting offloaded from yachts so we were just selling left, right and centre. People were just abandoning ship, like just owners that were just I'd, it's a crazy world, the super yachts. I, I worked on one for a little while in um, in Italy and just the stuff you see and you hear, it's just it's a whole other world of um, just people just, just getting rid of money. It's crazy. Um, but very eye opening and fun at the same time. Um, I had, we had a great time living in Europe and but once again, it was, it was time to go home, and and that was when we moved to we um, finally settled in Adelaide. And but yeah, Adelaide, Adelaide's home. Adelaide's beautiful. I love it. It's like I couldn't I couldn't live anywhere else. So so that moment coming back to Adelaide and that opportunity at Botanic at a pretty iconic 
part of the Adelaide DNA. How did that come about and did you have a sense of responsibility taking on custodianship of that restaurant? Yeah, I felt a lot of responsibility. Um, I got married in the Botanic Gardens and it was somewhere I frequented a lot. Um, and the restaurant, you know, was in a good shape. It was making money and all those things. But the food was, you know, the food was nice, but it wasn't challenging. And I guess the first question I asked was, what's edible around here? It looks like I can, I could see just from standing at the restaurant, at least a dozen things that looked like you could eat them and with more investigation there was a lot you could eat in that garden. So, you know, it really only felt like something that I could take on if there was a connection between the, the gardens and the restaurant and, you know, give it a sense of place and purpose. And, you know, the, the gardens were quite happy for that to happen and um, the owners of the restaurant were quite happy to sort of go down a, that sort of path. And and so, you know, for five, six years, it was almost six years, it was a progressive path of just building, building, building this restaurant into something that, you know, will had. Um, been noticed by you know local, international, interstate uh, media. It was about just mostly just creating a sense of place for that restaurant. And you know when you walk in, you sort of you, you're going to get an absolutely immersive um, experience of the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. It may seem completely obvious now. It's like, well, there's a restaurant in the Botanic Gardens. Why aren't they using produce from the gardens in the actual menu? But it just took that moment for you to sort of say, well, why aren't we doing this? I'd be really interested to understand now that with that growth that you had personally, professionally, starting a family in the middle of all this now as well, what happens when we get to 2020? It takes a lot. You, you work a lot. You, you're never there. You try, you try and make time. And when you do have time, you're tired. And so I'm lucky I have a very a, a strong wife who's you know, smart. And she she pushes like she was actually one of the reasons that Chefs on Wheel started. It, it was her it was her light bulb moment. Um, so 2020 comes around, we're noticing that the bookings are dropping off. Uh, people are getting scared. People are getting really worried. What are we going to do? We've got a daughter. We've got pay bills. We've got you know we've got a lot of things to consider here. And then one night over quite a few glasses of wine, and I was like, well, if it all goes to complete and utter shit, I've got an idea. Why don't we just get everyone together? They come up with a menu. We've got the facilities at our warehouse where we can package the food and store it. We've got delivery vans. We'll swing around, pick it up, repackage it. I think that my idea has got legs. And as always, Annabelle comes up with the ideas and I'm just I'm just the muscle, really. Every time Annabelle says, I've got an idea, Paul, all I think is this. Right, saddle up, let's yeah, roll exactly. kind of thing. And nine times <laughs> out of ten, she's on the money. Yeah. So, you know, and here we are. Um, but this is, you know, something that we need Annabelle more recognition for what she does and she really is the brains and the you know, we really love her and she's she pushes us. She's the really the driving force. We're gonna take a breather and we'll be right back with the rest of our chat with Paul. In all we do, we strive for better. Better processes, better relationships better outcomes. We challenge convention and refuse to accept the way it is as the way it should be. We are generous with our time and with each other because we believe that giving is better than taking. And what do we do? Well, we are makers. Makers of spaces. Makers of solutions. Makers of joy. Making a difference to make every day better. At Dust Studio, we make better. So, we've heard Paul's story 
And now we're going to learn a little bit more about the power of taking back time and how you learn to switch off in a profession that's always on. What, what is it about what this sort of light bulb moment of providing a kitchen and bringing a group of people together to provide amazing meals on mass? How and why you think it's been successful? Well, in the beginning, the the success of it was it was it was everyone getting together was we had soy, we had spark, we had Kamita, we had Chianti. It was there was all these the restaurants that were either institutions or places that everyone loved and it was supporting them. I think the kind of the mantra at the start was like, you know, let's keep their doors open so they're there when you when this is all over. But you know, if you want to go back to these restaurants, we need to find a way of keeping them fluid so they're there when it all goes back to normal. But for us, it was really that sense of community. People physically and wanted to help these restaurants. And there were people in Adelaide, such a small um, small town that we know everyone. And let's say Miura Station, who is used to selling his beef all over the world, the whole world was shut down. So we were taking on Miura, which came about with the Paul's Pasta Project at the time. I started making you know amazing ravioli out of his Wagyu. Like, this is the best Wagyu in you know the country, the world. I was turning it a ravioli for God's sake. But it took off. Like it was, you know, people wanted to support us, they wanted to support the producers. It was just that real sense of community, which is, you know, what sets Adelaide aside from most other states, is that, you know, we're we're, we're one degree of separation here. But the light bulb moment for us, it was, you know, once the restaurant started going back and we, you know, slowly started dwindling down the what we're buying from them and sort of getting them back on their paths again, the restaurants back open, is that people still kept buying from us. We're like, okay, this it's good. Okay, we're going to keep this going. So we sent out a survey and just said to all of our customers, um, we used to switch the um, the menu, new menu on every Sunday night and just watch the carnage and shoe. It was just... Order after order after order because after it was order. limited, right? It like, was uh, supply and demand. It's it was a supply and thing. demand. We were, poor Terry at the time was making about four hundred and fifty kilos of green chicken curry yeah. twice a week. What was your number one? Butter same. chicken was your number Butter one. Butter chicken was huge, um, but Terry's curries were you know they're still second to none. That that man knows how to make a good curry. Um, but we sent it out to the customers. And just said, is this something that you would want to keep on? And that was a ninety percent yes. And we thought, okay, we sat down and we thought. How do we make this a long-term proposition? I think the key thing is that you're, you're providing accessibility. You're enhancing your opportunity to transact with people, but doing it in a meaningful way, I think, is the, the key piece here. And it sounds like you've been able to create a great deal of goodwill on the back of supporting the community and in turn, the community is supporting you, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and the whole idea of what we want to do is, you know, it's, it's joy. We, we just want to bring joy to people's lives, whether it's, you know, either open the box, the food's amazing, like you don't, you don't have to worry. Like it's just taking it give you time to spend with your family. You know, it's not hard to get around this city. So you know, if we can save you doing dinner, you can do one more thing. You know, from the start, like everything that we do is about the customer satisfaction. Like we know what our values are, and you know, it's it's just about bringing joy to everyone. Everyone has time for their own families, and and you know, I think that's the change that we wanted to make for ourselves and for um, our staff. And how much how much has it impacted your life now that? You, you don't have that seven-day-a-week churn um, that you talked to before and the pressures that come without being in that restaurant environment. What does it mean for you and your well-being and your family and, and the way you want to live and your plans for the future? Oh, it's night and day. Um, as much as I love working in the restaurant and you know, I, I love my time at Botanic, um, but this is a very different lifestyle. And But sticking with the chefs on wheels and really pushing that, I've... I've I've lost 21 kilos since the start of um, COVID. It's really about 
clearer vision. My mind is clearer. I have a lot more time at my sleeve, which is kind of scary as well. Like I don't know what I've ever did with my time before. Like, And seeing my wife and daughter and my Margot, which, you know, if anyone follows my Instagram account, we're like, we're thick as thieves. We, you know, um, she's scary, man. She's she's four. She's about 125 centimeters, and she acts like a 15 year old. I'm in big trouble. Yeah, and you and you you guys decided to pull a sickie the other day, right? Yeah, we did actually. Yeah, it was. Um, and that's the you know beauty of owning your own business, right? On Monday morning, we um, we normally always share uh, a coffee at the, at the local cafe near her school, which is kind of our little ritual that we have on a Monday morning. Great way to start the week. And she's like, Dad, I just don't want to go to school today. And I was like, you know what? I don't really feel like going to work today either. I want to pull, pull a sickie. So, so you know, we agree. We're taking a sickie. Yeah, we're taking a sickie. So we just jumped back in the car and we went home. We uh, made some breakfast. I think I watched about seven episodes of um, Buddy Oliver. She's in love with um, Jamie Oliver's son, Buddy, and his cooking shows. And so we spent the day. At, uh, we went to a trampolining center. We went out for lunch. Uh, we spent the afternoon in the garden and crazy. But the, I mean, you think consider the value of what that means for your relationship with your daughter, but also you, just the fact that you can be happy and the world won't end if you don't go to school or work for one day. You uh, you alluded to the fact that you, you know, you're a bit rambunctious uh, as a teenager growing up in the, the mean streets of, was it? Yeah, it was Western Sydney. Western Reason. Sydney. And you've had some amazing mentors who've looked after you on that journey and helped to straighten you up. If you were in their shoes talking to 18-year-old version of yourself, what would you be saying? You need to knuckle down more. Just be a bit more serious with what you're doing and um, think about the long-term goal. Like it's, you know, you are young, but you need to really think about what every step along the way means and and try and make the right decision. Do you think that there's going to be a lot in this idea of uh, the great the reset, as it's sort of being called at the moment, around people wanting to part ways with their careers to date, but I suppose wanting to understand if the younger generation coming through now are going to be wired a little bit differently on the back of this? Yeah, I really do. I think this generation really compared to, say, mine, was that you really need to care for the staff and really need to create environments where it really is conducive to learning and encouraging a work-life balance. And I think that's the other thing that I would you know, tell my younger self. It's like you have to find balance. Like, really, It's not this badge of honor of like working 100-hour weeks. And I don't think that's actually something that I think is a great thing. And, you know, the, the guidance from your boss should be, you know what, 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 what does your week look like normally? Do you leave here and have anything else to do? Like do you play golf? Do you, you know, what, what else do you do to get your mind away from here? So what's your big idea? What, what's the thing that you think sets it all free? It's, it's more localised. Uh, another reinvigoration of this city. I want to build stuff, man. Like I want to see the, the riverbank, you know, brought alive. Like, look what they did the Yarra. The Yarra was, you know, like the Torrens was. It was a bit, bit crap. And like, you know, we want to keep reinvigorating the city. We did it with the, the small bar licences and look what happened. Like we really built up some really crappy streets into something that, you know, I love visiting and most people do. We need that again. We need another one of those to really build this city. We're seeing hotels being built. Like don't stop building things. It's, you know, we, we, we want this to keep being a vibrant city. Paul, such a great chat. Thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your story with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Paul for sharing his story and taking us through his city. If you'd like to find out more about Paul and the business he leads, you can do that at chefsonwheels.com.au. 20 Minute City is a podcast series created by Future Forum in collaboration with Das Studio and City Mag. If 20 minutes isn't enough, 
Head to future-forum.com.au for more from the people who make Adelaide better. In our next instalment, we chat with Sarah Horseman, director of Dash Studio. I didn't get the job, but an um, architecture firm who was sharing a space with that interior designer saw me walk into the office for the interview and I happened to be wearing yellow stockings for the interview and um, the head architect um, said to the interior designer, who was the girl in the yellow stockings, I'm looking for someone. I love the fact that she wore yellow stockings to a job interview. And just like that, our time is up. 20 Minute City has been produced on Ghana Country.